This is The Real Good Podcast. My name is John Roebuck and with me is Blakey Bullington Curtis. <laughs> I like it. Sorry. I should have said something. And Derek Chevalier du Bellabari Armstrong. I will have satisfaction, John. Well, we haven't done the episode yet, so we don't know. <laughs> this episode is called By What Means the Fellas Acquired the Title of Greatest Podcasters Ever. And that's because we'll be talking about Stanley Kubrick's unsung masterpiece, Barry Lyndon, largely shunned by critics upon its release in 1975. Age has been kind to Barry Lyndon, in my opinion, and it's now regarded by many as one of, if not the greatest of all Kubrick films. But what do you reckon, Derek? Well, it's regarded by you that way, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> how, it's in how, my top ten of all time. It's in the top ten of all time. Which, is why, get there at the start. which is why we're talking about it as well. Yeah. Because the new concept. Ah, explain yeah. the concept, Blakey. Yeah, so the concept that um, I think you guys actually came up with, I don't think I can take any credit, was no, that we would... You, no credit. Derek yeah, came up with it. <laughs> we would talk... I'm the idea man. <laughs> <laughs> He's also the beauty. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, thank you. Um, we thought it'd be good The to... old beauty. <laughs> <laughs> I was 42 when... Uh, the Barry original bell. Really <laughs> Sorry, Concept, concept with us, Blakey. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, the original, con- the con- not the original concept. The concept was to talk about a film that one of us um, has seen and loved, and the other two have not, um, which we thought would be pretty difficult. But Jaws has stumped me with the first suggestion. So yeah, that was great. It was awesome. And Barry the brilliant Lyndon. thing was I actually had Barry Lyndon home with me from the library, so I was like planning to watch it any day. Then I'll, I'll be interested and, to yeah. see how easy it is going forth finding movies that. Especially you haven't seen Derek yeah. that we love. Well, I'll just go every time. I'll be the. Ch- I'll choose the movie every time. How does that sound? Yeah, yeah. works for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm stalling, uh, and that's because I don't have particularly wonderful things to say about this film, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, look, did you hear me when I said it was his it, unsung masterpiece? It was unsung. I'm not singing it either. Um, <laughs> it's. There are parts of this film that I like quite a bit. I'll I'll give you a little plot synopsis. It's basically about a man who stars out uh, named Redmond Barry, and it's uh, 18th century, 19th century, 18th century. And he's he's, uh, kind of, I'm not sure what his station in society is, but he's on one of the lower rungs of society trying to kind of work his way up through various um, odd relationships involving, you know, a love affair with his cousin that isn't quite consummated and and ends in a duel. Um, There's the dueling as a theme in this film, and he kind of moves from one army to another army and is constantly on the run. It's... and I think that this is my, my by, by giving this plot synopsis is kind of getting at why um, it maybe didn't work for me so much because I don't I don't always love the what what, what this is essentially the biopic structure uh, um, even though it's not a real person it's the it's the you know from one significant moment in in his life to another significant moment in his life without that three act structure that a lot of films rely on. And I think that may have been why I found it so meandering and why I kind of uh, found my attention wandering during it. Um, and I guess the visuals, beautiful as they were at certain parts, were not quite enough to sustain me. I, I respect the film. I admire the film, but I don't love the film. I would say I like the film, but I don't like it very strongly, huh, unfortunately. Like it. It's funny you say that about like the whole concept of um, class because I, don't, I didn't see that as his motives particularly at the start. I didn't know if you even had a motive, really. Well, I feel like at the start, for me, like it, it, seemed, it seemed to be centered around his loneliness and him feeling lonely as a, as a person, um, especially like, and that all comes for me in that beautiful scene where he, he meets up with that farmer, farm, the farmer whose husband had gone off to war yes. and she was extremely lonely. And you could just tell in that moment that it was just two lonely characters. And when he... Um, he, 
was you know meant to go undercover, and then he just saw the loneliness in this other character and started crying and just admitted all these troubles. For me, that loneliness was the key of to, to the entire that, that, film. That's interesting. It's that you, you you saw that sort of depth in him because I find him quite a shallow character. He's a but, but I think that's part of the appeal of his character is that he is this blank character and he goes through all these um you know huge events uh, life he's events a bit of a and, and, and a he, he doesn't learn anything yeah yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah a bit of a forest gun for sure well, I, I i for me it was like that i think because it, it, it goes for about three hours this film and i think it needed to go for three hours because if you had started where it feels like for me the story starts when he um gets married that seems to be the, the bulk of the story seeing that that family unravel and to see mm. where that goes. And so you could almost say that that first hour and a half is just what's the point of that. But I think you need that to understand the, the complexities of the character because if you just kind of show all of that history of where he's come from in the first five, ten if minutes. If you did a ten-minute montage, it wouldn't be as effective. You're not going to yeah. empathise with the character. You're not going to understand where he's come did from. Did you empathise with yes, him? Yes, I did because I, I saw him as this, this naive kid who fell in love and was taken for granted. And then from that point, he just was always searching for love to kind of cure a loneliness that he had Where? within him. Okay. See, I don't see, uh, like, I, I don't get, I don't get much out of his character at all. But having said that, this is in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. So I really like. What's your I, spiel? I want to hear you go off on Yeah, I'd like to know why it. it's your top yeah. 10. Listen, fellas, I'll be honest, I had a really busy week and I wasn't able to watch it very <laughs> recently. But I think that the reason I, um, uh, I I think so highly of it is because it's it's Kubrick, I think, is the most precise filmmaker when it comes to craft. And this film, I think, he shows that off more is. than he is. Yes. Okay. And this film shows that more often more than anything. And I also find this quite an immersive film in terms of the 18th century. Every shot, I think it's one of the most beautiful looking films ever made. And every shot is putting you into that era. And I also think, I mean, I'll be interested to hear what you guys think about like a lot of claims that Kubrick is a very emotionless filmmaker because I find he is superficially quite detached, but underneath that sort of detached coldness, there is sort of this reservoir of feeling. And I really find that in, in Barry Lyndon and I think it's not the sort of emotion or, or feeling you might get out of a Frank Capra movie. Mm -hmm. It's a different, it's a, you know, an emotion from a different approach. But yeah. a lot of the great filmmakers are saddled with that claim. You've got the people say that about Soderbergh. People say that about Paul Thomas Anderson. And those guys make technically brilliant films that I think are quite immersive. And so, but... I do find Paul the, Thomas Anderson quite emotionless. And that, even Steven Soderbergh. But that is one of the most difficult things to quantify, though. Like, I guess you just a vibe you get from a film. Like, this film is cold and clinical. And that's what you hear people say about a variety of filmmakers, including Kubrick. And I, I guess there's something to that. Like, he's not... He's not, there aren't a lot of people. Well, you just actually you just mentioned a scene where somebody weeps in this film, so it's mm. not like he's not in touch with that. It's and, just, I, and I think well, having having, flatly, having Lyndon himself as such a blank canvas does yeah. sort of highlight. It it make it sort of uh, promotes that idea that this is cold and detached, but then it's also forgetting all the characters that are around this guy. And I think um, uh, his films, Kubrick's films, are methodical and precise, but they're always looking for very few human qualities. And there's a lot of like uh, even just looking at Lord Bullington's reaction to Lyndon's character, to, uh, sorry, relationship with his mother, or or like you were saying, this this um, lonely war widow, Lyndon is sort of like this foil for the these sort of um, very human emotions that are going on around him, and I think his presence both 
amplifies the cold atmosphere of the film, but also in a way emphasizes uh, the humanness of the characters mm. around him. Well, I think that's I think in regards to what you guys were saying about having cold directors, I do I think that's true because I, I think when you direct, you are dr- there are so many different aspects that go into making a film a film. You have and the the two most prominent ones are the camera and and the and the actors and I think generally what, what I was taught you know at, at film school is that you will have directors who are gravitate towards the the lens and and, and the camera and how mm-hmm. we see the world and then you've got those who gravitate towards the actor and understand the emotion mm-hmm. and, and I think Kubrick is and and a lot of the the, the people that you've mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson and um, Soderbergh, they are very much drawn to the technical mm-hmm. aspect of it because that's how their brain works in a natural way. Where they've tried to teach themselves the emotional way in a different in a different sense. Uh, I think Kubrick, uh, he's got that, but he also deals with uh, issues that are very human, like the, the trial in Paths of Glory. And I, I think I agree, th- but this, I think this he's movie, cold in the he, way he deals with in the way he, it. Maybe in the way he goes about it, but I think it's almost with this this film, sort of like a, a strange companion piece to me, at least, to Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, mm. which was about life itself, really, and, and human, you know, like the. How would you say it? Sort of the human race, mm-hmm. and this film is about a, a sort of very insignificant example of a human, like a guy who's just going and doing things, and a, not a particularly appealing guy. Mm. But it's still about sort of the process you go when you go and do things in life, and I think it's sort of it, it's an examination of like of, society of, of society. But no, it's an examination of the path you go when you go through life, and but you have yeah. to question why. Like that, that's if you. Come back to the fundamental of why Barry Lyndon was doing everything that he was doing. It always seemed to be was to fuel a need to to like have accept. And, and I think one of the the most beautiful moments in the film for me is when his son is showing him all the different photos that all the different p- pictures he's drawn, mm-hmm. and they're sitting together on the couch. And then it pulls out, and you see this giant beautiful painting that Barry's obviously purchased because you saw in, in the scene before talking about how much does this painting cost mm-hmm. and this idea of wanting to be seen as part of this high society and yet he's just in the corner with his son and they're much more interested at looking at the pictures that his son has mm-hmm. so he had that bond with his son which was beautiful and that in that like those moments were the ones where I was like I can really see all of that I, when you say like that you sort of got to ask why I think it's the lack of why that I find uh, interesting about Barry Lyndon because it's I mean, why does anyone do anything? And I think this is exactly like right. an extreme version of everyone. It's just sort of, he's going through the motions. That's and exactly right. What's the, it's a bit like, um, I've just been spending the last 30 seconds trying to think of the character's name and I can't, but the, the, I've the, got the, IMDb the lead character in American Psycho. Oh, Patrick bit, Bateman. Patrick Bateman. He's a bit like a, like a cipher. Like he's like, he has these, these moments of what seem like human motion creeping through, but he's kind of a blank canvas, like you said. And, he, and I think, and I think that you are, Attributing a little bit too much psychological complexity to him when you're talking about the the search for lo- with the, the loneliness. I think, really, he, it's almost like he's a petulant child because his reaction his reaction to losing his cousin was more like, "You put this thing out there, this 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 toy out there to tease me, and then you took it away again." And he you know he throws a a, a cup of of wine in his rival's face, Captain Quinn, I guess that is. Um, and you almost don't really get the impression that Quinn has actually wronged him. It's just Quinn has won the hand of the woman that he 
yeah, loves. Uh, and, and it's like it's more like he's he's angry about having something taken away from him more than that he has this love or that he feels this need to connect. See, I I completely disagree because I think um in that like I think he feels that love more than anything. And I think that first scene when we meet Barry Lyndon speaks absolute volumes of this film is you she says she hides the ribbon and she hides the ribbon in her cleavage. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, find the ribbon, and then it's yours. And if you can't find it, I think so much less of you. And then he looks in her hands, which he, and he mm-hmm. can't, and it's not in her hands. And then he goes, I can't find it. Is that just because he's being a gentleman? No, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it it speaks more about the purity of his mind and where he is as a naive child of wanting to believe in love and these big grand ideas. And then throughout the film, we see the evolution of this character go down and him change who he is in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he ever had those intentions when he begins. And I don't think I'm reading into the loneliness too much because there are numerous points without the film that constantly talk about loneliness, loneliness, loneliness. At the end of the film, when he has his leg cut off, he goes, then that lonely man has to walk back and they constantly are referring back to all you, that sort of stuff. You know, I'm stuff. wondering if it's the thing that give, makes me feel distanced from it and not close to him is that he's being looked at like a scientific uh, object, like like an animal in a cage in a way. And which, that's the role of the narrator. Yeah, which I think is very interesting in what we were talking about when we were talking about some act, some directors being cold. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Well, yeah, like, I, well, think, I think directors are cold in that they examine mm-hmm. humanity yeah. and they do it in a way where they're being neutral and they're not being involved. Whereas I'll think a lot of actors, directors, they get caught up in this beautiful, yeah. strong emotion. And so we don't see the world as a whole. We get caught up in what this individual is dealing with. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, as John said... This is very much an examination of, of, of something bigger. I want to, uh, you mentioned the narrator, mm-hmm. uh, and I want to quickly mention him, narration by Michael Horton, who's not actually a character in the film. No. And the narration, uh, I mean, destroys, uh, not destroys, but lessens the suspension or sort of uh, the uh, action in the film by telling you what's going to happen. You know he's doomed, um, and you know all the uh, the developments before they happen. Well, it's and what, how do you feel yeah. about that? Well, I was going to say that the, the scene that I really think of is um, the scene that ends the first act right before the intermission, where um, the original um, uh, Lyndon uh, dies. Um, he's uh, having a coughing fit or something, which I guess turns into his death, which you don't, which you wouldn't know just from looking at it, except that the narrator is telling you, and the narrator's reading like statistics about his life, like he leaves this many children behind or whatever, while he's in the process of dying, and it's it, it, there's a black humor to it, but there's also an extreme distance. It's taking you out of that moment where you would be experiencing something profound, and just and and saying. This is a, a functional piece in the story. Well, do, that's all. Do, do you know? I think sort of the the detachment works, and that sort of uh, yeah emotional detachment works in this film because that's how you know from what I know of the era. That's how things were back then, and I think it's a especially services that the uh, a period of piece of that era because it's it's slow and it's cautious and the and it's unemotional because that's how the characters interacted, mm-hmm. and it's one of the few films that I think. Uh, I can think that come to mind, which really, really puts me at least in that scenario. And interestingly enough, one of the other films that really does that, I don't think it's nearly as good, is The Revenant. It really makes me feel like I'm there. Mm, yeah. Interestingly enough, both films were filmed using only natural light. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with so it. So that's what I wanted to talk about too. But, so I, you, you were, when you say 
this film made you feel like you were in that scenario? Well, well, like, well, that, that scenario, it really evoked that era for me. And I think okay. uh, part of it is um, yeah. uh, the fact that um, apparently Kubrick studied all these um, 18th century paintings and looking at the oh, still, you can tell. Still, yeah. you can oh, tell. Yeah, they yeah. look, it looks like it, it feels like it. I mean... These don't feel like characters in costume. These feel like 18th century, in, you know, inhabitants. Whereas if you watch a movie like Pride and Prejudice, the, the Joe Wright movie, and it's Kira Knightley in a costume. Whereas these are people who are living and breathing See, that th- world. this felt like Kubrick world to me. Yeah. Okay. So, so, I'll, so oh, yeah. let me ask you a more general question. What do you guys think about period pieces in general? A fan, not a fan, don't see them very much. What do you well, think? Well, it's a general, pretty big... I'm talking about yeah, like costume dramas from like you know the 18th century to the to the 19th to the 20th century. Uh, yeah, 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if they're good, but like what I'm what I'm leading toward is a, an example of a, a period piece that I think is terrific because it gets the details right, but also because it gets the emotion and the human drama right, and that's Dangerous Liaisons. Have you ever seen that? Oh, a long time ago. Yeah, with John Malkovich yeah. and. Um, but when you say when you say it gets the human erosion, erosions right, like does it does it feel neat to get that right? Like does it, it need to get that right in a certain it, way? Well, for me, what it is, okay, so maybe human erosions is the wrong way to describe it. The chess game of of interpersonal relationships, the um, cleverness of trying to you know outwit somebody. Those are those are interesting elements in and of themselves that amplify the costume drama. To but me. I, I, so here, this is to me, this is more like the costume drama. With the cleverness of the interactions kind of scrubbed out of it, because um, I just don't feel like most much of what trans, transpires between the characters seems empty to me. Even like I mean, the the relationship between um, between Barry and his stepson um, is one of the most interesting in the film, but it's kind of lacking in blood or something. It just doesn't. It's I wanted more from from from. I don't know how to describe it, and I and it's interesting because that also leads to the denouement, which I don't know if we want to spoil. But it's it's kind of the the most interesting moment of Barry's character's life. Spoil it. Uh, spoil it. Okay. Well, we're spoiling it. So he uh, in in the second duel of the film, he um, resists the chance to gun down his stepson, who has first tried to, who's gotten the right to shoot at him first, but has um, discharged the weapon in in a nervous fit and lost his turn essentially barry we know is a good shot because he he hit the guy in the first duel and because we've seen it throughout he just fires his gun at the ground and so he that's his moment of redemption but i didn't know if i really understood what the point of it was but was it it his moment of redemption or did he want to die that's the thing because of his despair that's the things that you have to question like and that that's why i found barry Lyndon so fascinating as a character is is did he want to die or did he Want to re- like provide redemption for his stepson that he had wronged, or did it? Does it come? He him. He or does it comes? Or does it come back to this idea of wanting to be a gentleman? And I, I feel maybe. like what I like about like for some reason what I, what's appealing about Barry Lyndon is the lack of thought he, he appears to put in everything, and he's yeah. sort of um this sort of aspect of uh, everyone who's just sort of self serving and uh, see, and tries to that. get ahead and and really doesn't put much thought into why they want what they want. Um, so I didn't see that at all because. You know, the, the the when he sees that opportunity, when he sees the two soldiers talking in the lake, and he sees an opportunity to steal one of their identities. I didn't see that 
coming. I was told by the narrator that he will be seen an opportunity that he will take advantage of. And even when they were talking in the lake, I didn't see that opportunity arise. And then when he's being uh, uh, the the gambler, like he's you know he's gambling and they're cheating. That that seems well, so very he's clever. He's an opportunist for but sure. But even and yeah. even when um, when Charles uh, Charles Lyndon dies again, even though Barry didn't touch him, I was like, did he cause the death? Mm-hmm. Barry Lyndon for me created this this mythology around him as a character, and it all started when he was in that fist fight in the war with his own soldier, because that other guy was bigger and stronger, and See, somehow t- Barry beat him, and t- so I the whole way through was just like, I am not entirely sure at any point what he is capable of and what he's not capable mm. of. To me, it's more this 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 sort of blank canvas stumbling through these scenarios, and it's um. It's about everything going on around Barry Lyndon that I that I find interesting, but it for me it comes back to that that first duel that he is in, and that's one of the the most well filmed um, things that I've ever seen because I knew Barry was going to win, and the reason I knew Barry was going to win is the way they they it's filmed the, name, him. the movie's named after him. And no, he's in the whole no, movie. no, no. It was the way they shot him, and the, and Barry looked like this confident hero, even yeah. though he was the boy who was supposed to die. And then when it goes to the, the captain and you, you couldn't see his face properly. And I was like, that is a conscious decision that Stanley Kubrick's made because the frame doesn't look right. And because the frame doesn't look right, we automatically go, he is going to lose. Now I want to talk mm. about you saying uh, how things were framed and the frame doesn't look right. We have to quickly talk about it before we finish up uh, this movie technically. Yes, uh, and I think, um, I mean, Derek, you go first. And oh, so, yeah. so the, uh, I'll have to say um, I did a kind of I kind of glanced at the Wikipedia page of the of the film afterward. I, it's always nice to brush up on the plot sometimes if you're fading uh, in and out. Um, but also, just I wanted to see what was considered to be why it was so acclaimed. And so that so that was when I learned about the natural light, which it hadn't occurred to me automatically to, as I was watching it. And um, then I went back and thought, oh yeah, there was that scene with the candles in, in the frame that I thought was really profoundly shot and. Yes, it had that kind of gray quality to it that you know makes it more a little bit a little bit more difficult to see things, but feels more natural. And in retrospect, I really admired all that. Yeah, but I guess at the time that I was watching it, it didn't have as much impact on me as I guess I thought would have thought it mm. would have thought it did. I think you touched on it before earlier, Joe, when you were talking about the research that Kubrick did, and I actually thought that there were so many times when I watch it and. It, so many of the frames looked like a picture, like a painting, There's and it looked beautiful. And, and at, at points where I was almost looking at the extras in the background, I was trying to figure out if they'd just been. Mm-hmm. It's just drawn every on. detail in every mm. frame. There's this. Um, I recently watched the uh, Polanski movie Tess, which is based on the novel Tess. Oh yeah, I like that film. It's, it's a good film, isn't it? And um, there's this one shot. To me, it reminded me of a lesser version of Barry Lyndon a lot. And mm. uh, the fellow I watched it with agreed. Uh, so I have to be right. Uh, but there's this one amazing shot in Tess where they're in the mist, uh, sort of this misty sort the whole of thing um, is mist. meadow. Yeah. <laughs> and these um, this hunting party rides through the shot out of the mist and then comes through the shot and, you know, goes back into the mist. And at the time I turned to the guy and said, that was like a shot out of Barry Lyndon. And it was an amazing shot. And every shot in Barry Lyndon is like that. Like that good Like a shot me. from Barry yeah. Lyndon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one thing, speaking of... of the image of it. Um, I don't know that I had the correct aspect ratio on when I was watching it Ooh. because I don't adjust the my DVD player. I had a DVD from the library. Uh, you know, I just let it, and and it, it it wasn't there were there were um, it was letterbox. There were definitely you know the black bars below and above and below. But I felt like it was a bit too square, and that it was because it was shot in you know seventy millimeter probably right. 
You don't know? Yeah. yeah. Blake, do you know? Nah, no. Anyway, I think I expected... That's I why think... KP here, Blakey. You're yeah. the filmmaker. <laughs> oh, sorry. I think some of it... Um, Red Scarlet. I just imagined it. I guess I imagined that everything back then was shot in 70 millimeter, but obviously that's not correct. But um, I, I, So I don't know if I if the beauty of the images was muted a little bit for me because I didn't have quite the right, right aspect ratio, but I couldn't be bothered to, to change it. Hmm. All right, let's move on to our top three. Top three films influenced by Stanley Kubrick. Now, I want to go first, because I never get to yeah, go first. you should go first. And I also have the least to say every single time, so I can get mine out of the way, yeah. and then you guys go. Uh, number three for me is Under the Skin, the Jonathan Glazer movie. Oh, that's a good one. Great movie. Watched it when I was camping in a tent. Just uh, everything about it reminded me of Kubrick, and I think Jonathan Absolutely. Glazer in general is a very sort of, for lack of a less wanky word, Kubrick, Kubrickian director. His other films... Oh, have you seen Birth? Yeah, well, That's I was, awesome. I was <laughs> finished talking, mate. Um, my second is Inception. I remember watching Inception, uh, thinking like, "God, if Kubrick was ever to do an action movie, this is what it would be like." There was uh, just my initial re- uh, response to Inception was uh, Kubrick, and the first is we've already brought him up. Um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is probably there. Will be blood and the, the meticulousness of the uh, the the. The craft again, for lack of a better word, I think it is lacking that reservoir of feeling that I think is under um, uh, all of Kubrick's films, which I think is very much lacking from Paul Thomas Anderson's. I think Paul Thomas Anderson is Kubrick without that. Mm. Uh, so they're my top three. Blakey. See, I I cooked this. Unfortunately, I thought we were talking about Stanley Kubrick films that had like had inspired other films, and so you guys were talking about other films, whereas I just took it I've as got a, the, the three the most inspirational. Kubrick films, yeah. which okay. is what yeah, I want. So sorry. We've never that. really got the top three down. Let's <laughs> <laughs> continue the tradition of fucking it, it up. Great. Good, good. <laughs> um, well, number three is The Shining. Obviously, mm. I think The Shining's influenced a stack of horror films, and I think anything that you see with twins in it is probably Shining um, related. Yeah, sure. Like, um, dude, where's my car? Eggs, correct. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, <laughs> uh, second one is 2001 Space Odyssey. Um, even you see it all the time, and anything I feel like you can't do a film in this genre without, um, you know, tipping your hat to 2001 Space Odyssey, even with the most recent one, Arrival, where mm. you know, I feel like when they first went to meet the aliens and Arrival, that and the gravity changes, it just stank mm. of 2001 mm-hmm. Space Odyssey or Interstellar recently, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um. And then the first one for me is Dr. Strangelove. Mm. Um, and the reason Dr. Strangelove is because um, I remember reading after I watched that film that um, once that film was made, um, it freaked out a whole lot of people at the Pentagon. Um, and so they mm-hmm. actually changed the processes of how they uh, deal with nuclear warheads huh. because they didn't no longer wanted um, mm. just one group to have all the keys to that. And it was because... Um, Dr. Strangelove inspired that. Well, so even though it's not a film, of influential. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought was really fascinating. All right, Derek. Well, I combined your two approaches. Essentially, okay. I did my top three Kubrick films. And it's good I, we're all on the same page. <laughs> well, I did my top three. The, 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 I had a struggle with it a little bit. So the way I went about it was deciding what my top three Kubrick films was and then choosing a film that was based on, that was kind of inspired by those films. So uh, the, my number three was 2001, um, which I did not like that much when I, the first two times I saw it and then like two years ago I saw it and it blew my mind. Um, I decided to choose Moon for that particular film because um, there's a character in Moon. I, I hope you guys have both seen Moon. Yep. Um, Did is, you just say you didn't like 2001 the first time you saw the it? The first or? two times okay, I saw yep, it. Okay, yep, yep. One of which was when I was like eight years old, so that could explain that. But um, my, my dad thought it was going to be like Star Wars, which, mm-hmm. no. Um, and Moon has a character in it that's very much like Hal 9000. Um, 
but what with a with a twist to it and um so that's Kevin and Spacey. also it's the yeah exactly it's the uh, that's the twist it's it's kaiser, <laughs> it's kaiser sose no um so it's uh and, and the, i don't know that the rest of the film gives that off to it but you know being set in space and everything with the same character that's what i went with for that number two was the shining that's my second favorite and i also chose there will be blood as a specific influence from the shining um primarily because i looked up on the internet and found an article that related the two of them. But it's interesting because both um, Jack Torrance (laughs) and uh, Daniel Plainview are these kind of characters that you want to like but are kind of awful, essentially, even before Jack Torrance becomes possessed um, by the hotel. He's he's got some issues going on, and that's made even more manifest in Stephen King's book, actually. And so they kind of... um, So I'm glad to see we're on the same page, even if not for the same reasons. Um, And my number one uh, Kubrick film is A Clockwork Orange. And A Clockwork Orange reminds me a lot of Train Spotting, actually. Um, (laughs) It's got a lot of the similar kind of youth of England um, with no future and an anarchy, anarchic outlook on the world. And there's some there's some some real interesting devices. Do you remember the the scene in Clockwork Orange where the whole it's a sex scene in Fast Forward? Mm. Yeah, it's, there's a bunch of like quirky bits in that like that that are that are kind of like you could see that, that Danny Boyle might have been inspired by those things when he mm, trained. Absolutely. Spotting. So those are my three. Blakey, can you give me a final thoughts on Barry Lyndon? Uh, did you did you like it? You never really said. <laughs> I liked it. I did like it, but I feel like it was a bit long. Okay. Um, yeah. So I did I did really enjoy it. And the more it's one of those films. I think the more I've been thinking about it since I watched it today, the more I enjoy it. So I think it will be one of those ones in a week or two that I'll be like, ah, a lot of more pennies will drop. <laughs> and I'm gonna pick up, I'm gonna pick up on that, and I'm actually gonna double down on that comment because one thing double one down. one film that this also reminded me of, and I don't know that you will, would have seen it, um, but maybe you have, is Eric von Stroheim's Greed, the silent film. Uh, that is four hours long. Um, in its there's the format that exists out there is is, is trying to um, amplify it with some scenes that were that were lost and and with some still shots of it. Anyway, it's you should see it. It's brilliant, and it does takes a similar approach of following this guy through an incredible number of episodes that aren't necessarily related to each other and by the end you emerge with a real understanding of his character and I think you know the more I think about it I may feel that way toward Barry Lyndon as well would you know what's interesting is uh, firstly uh, going on from what both of you said and the fact that you said you didn't like 2001 the first two times you saw it the first time I saw Barry Lyndon I didn't like it at all and I know quite a few people who uh, didn't like Barry Lyndon the first time they saw it as well and um, all of those people said the second time they saw it, they started to think it was one of the best movies ever made, myself included. I remember um, maybe I was 15 or 16 when I first saw it and I, I think I ended up tuning, like turning it off uh, maybe with an hour to go. And the second time I saw it, it I completely reversed my opinion mm-hmm. about it. Because I, I think also perhaps I knew what to expect and mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting something that it wasn't going to be. Yeah. Um, so I'll be interested to see if uh, maybe in a few years' time you revisit it because I think this is one of the best movies ever made. I think it's Kubrick's best movie uh, out of essentially only good movies except except for maybe Spartacus. Um, well, I'm going to watch it again before I return to the library. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the time, man. It's too long. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Anyway, watch it again one day. I will. Maybe you'll, uh, you know. Thank you, you for like suggesting it. it. You forced it on. No worries. Our, We're going to be schedule, stuck next time because you've seen everything except for Barry Lyndon, and now you've seen Barry Lyndon. Well, next time, I, but it's going to be Blake or my turn next time. Yeah, exactly. So, there you go. This has been the Real Good Podcast. Uh, my name is John Roebuck. Thank you, Blake Curtis. No problem. Thank you, Derek Armstrong. My pleasure. For more information, reviews, more podcasts, videos, you know, opinion pieces, uh, go to realgood.com.au. That's real with two e's. And hey, John, is this podcast on iTunes now? It is. 
you're hopefully listening to this through iTunes. Subscribe if you're not for, for more of this uh, and even better ones than this. <laughs> See you later.